walking in a country road And I've been chasing after my shadow Hey everybody, the Camino Podcast is back. After more than two months away in a sort of unplanned hiatus, it's good to be back with you. I'm Dave Whitson. This is episode 13. This is being recorded in mid-May. The last episode was posted in early March, and it's been a busy time since then. In March, I spent three weeks in Rwanda and Uganda leading a high school trip, and it was great. It was a fantastic experience, and uh, then I came home from that and was in Chicago for a conference the next weekend, and you know, life sort of got complicated and got away from me there for a little while, but we're back in full force now. I've got a lot of interviews scheduled over the next couple weeks, a few that I've already finished, and others in the works, so my hope is to have eight to ten more episodes posted before I head to Spain on June 24th. And depending on how things go, I may even try to post a couple of lower quality episodes from the road. You know, I can't bring the good microphone there in the backpack, but I'm going to play around with it a bit and see what's possible. So stay tuned for that. Today's episode focuses on an extended interview with John K. Moore Jr. from the University of Alabama, Birmingham. And I didn't intend to spend a whole episode on one interview, but it was great. We got rolling and we filled just about an hour. You know, the primary focus of the interview was intended to be on the two major epic poems set on at least part of the Camino, the Song of Roland and the Poem of the Cid. These feature two epic heroes, Roland, the nephew of the legendary French king Charlemagne, and El Cid, El Campeador, a great military leader from medieval Spain. You know, their stories are told on the Camino, particularly in Roncevalle and in Burgos, but their stories also help to tell the story of the Camino de Santiago and its close relationship with the Christian Reconquista of the Iberian Peninsula. And John does a great job of walking us through the specs. Uh, The audio at the end loses a little quality, but stick with it as he offers some great final observations on Santiago Matamoros that are well worth the effort. So, um, So welcome back. I'm glad to be here. Hope you are too. Stay tuned for that extended interview and uh, then for further episodes coming soon. Thanks. John K. Moore Jr. is an associate professor of Spanish at University of Alabama at Birmingham with specialties including Hispanic cultural and literary history, the road to Santiago and pilgrimage, and art and architecture, which makes him perfect for this podcast. So thanks for speaking with me, John. I'm happy to, Dave. Thank you. It's uh, it's rare that I find someone who has an academic expertise in the road to Santiago and pilgrimage. So what's your background with the Camino? How did you first get connected to this? When I was teaching high school Spanish, I was invited by a former professor of mine to serve as a teaching assistant for his summer Camino program. His name is Tom Spaccarelli. I believe you have interviewed Jack Hitt. Tom mm-hmm. Spaccarelli was Jack's professor as well and was a huge um, impetus behind Off the Road. Wow. 
okay. Jack's book. Um, and so that was a transformative experience for me as the Camino can be and is for many. And the, that was in 2000. And the experience served as a, a cultural awakening, for example, um, walking through the history of the old Roman highway and bridge outside of the little town of Sidalki on the Camino Francese, mm-hmm. and followed by a medieval bridge, and then wheat fields, um, olive groves, and vineyards, the holy trinity of classical <laughs> cuisine. And then walking through and staying in locales affiliated with epic heroes I had only read about, such as Roland and the Cid. Mm-hmm. Um, that took me a while to process the magnitude of that. And it became the context for my subsequent PhD work. I was, um, in, I remember being in class one day and we were studying the, uh, poem of Fernan Gonzalez. Mm-hmm. And there was um, an image of Arlanza, the monastery, which was on an alternate route of the Camino, right? Mm-hmm. I think our, our modern conception of it tends to be canalized into um, a single single road, but the reality is today, I think it's returning to that, um, and was in medieval times a a variety of routes to mm-hmm. and from the Shrine of Santiago and our Lanza Monastery was on one of those. And that was one of the sites we saw um, before embarking um, on our journey from Roncesvalles. Mm-hmm. And I felt my studies come alive in that moment. And so that's how the Camino became the, the framework for my PhD work. And then it's become the overarching theme in my academic life, I teach honor seminars and uh, capstone seminars in the department on the Camino, but also in the context of pilgrimage more broadly, Dave. Mm-hmm. And I've taken students um, a couple of times to uh, walk in Spain on um, a variety of routes, actually, not just the Camino Francis. And it took me about 10 years to process that journey, I'd mm-hmm. say, in yeah. terms of my publications, um, in terms of thinking through some of the issues that I confronted, the uh, imagery of uh, St. James as a pilgrim and also as a, as a warrior. Mm-hmm. That um, is one example. And so I had some publications come out over the next decade, and it's um, been something that I've been able to pay forward to students, um, sharing the experience with them, and it's enriched my academic life, and I hope the life of the university here. We've had uh, visiting lecturers and uh, exhibit uh, Sacred Steps on the Camino and to UAB, and um, it's been a lot of fun. And, And right now, my connection academically to the Camino is retracing the steps of a man who was um, prosecuted in the 17th century for, uh, he was a mulatto pilgrim, 
and how he's described in the legal document, and he was prosecuted for impersonating a priest and other crimes. And so this gets into the whole connection between the picaresque and pilgrimage, ethnic studies, um, race studies, and pilgrimage, which um, I think is a, it's really interesting to me. So that's, that's where I am right now. Um, that's my background with the Camino. That's really interesting. It's it's something that I haven't um, encountered much before, or or thought much about the intersection of of ethnic studies and race studies and pilgrimage. Could you talk a, a little bit more about some of the connections that you see there? Maybe particularly focused on the Camino. Sure. There's a French film, Saint Jacques Le Mecque, mm-hmm. Saint James Mecca. Um, I believe it's it's called Peregrinos in the Spanish version, and the title in English is Start Walking. Hmm. (laughs) I'm not sure why it's called that, but that film does a really good job of introducing those issues in connection to the Camino itself. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know, have you seen it? No, I haven't. It's worth, um, and I would encourage your listeners as well to to see the movie, it's it's a cheeky French comedy that um, some think gives short shrift to the uh, Spanish part of the Camino, and I and I sympathize with that. And it, I mean, it has its shortcomings for sure, but but it does some things well. And one of the things it does well is present this issue of of race, mm-hmm. um, the the guy for the pilgrim group departing from Paris is named Guy, and he is a man of black African descent. Mm-hmm. And then two of the members of the entourage are Muslim youth mm-hmm. who um, have olive-hued skin and obviously don't fit in. And, and one of them has a crush on um, a girl who's been given the Camino trip is a graduation present from a rich uncle, something Hmm. like that. And so he convinces his cousin, who is actually um, illiterate, that they are going to Mecca, hence the title Saint-Jacques the Mecca. So you have to suspend your disbelief. It's (laughs) it's kind of offensive that this kid would be portrayed, a Muslim youth would be portrayed as it's so stupid he couldn't figure out that they were going, mm-hmm. uh, not going to Mecca. But it does allow for some comedic scenes. And it also opens the way to um, a syncretic analysis. So syncretism is an issue that, I, a topic that I cover with my students, and it, and it is often found in pilgrimage, including on the Camino. Mm-hmm. And that blending of religious traditions, if we understand syncretism to be the blending of religious traditions Mm -hmm. um, and practices that come from that convergence or crashing in together of these traditions, then the the movie does a good job of portraying that. For example, when they um, scale the Iron Cross, the the mountain there, Mm -hmm. The, they lay their stone down, and by, by this point, um, the young man, a uh, young Islamic man, is aware that they're not going to Mecca, that they're going to Santiago. Mm-hmm. And 
um, he and he's learning to read along the way, and so he's becoming empowered by that experience. And they lay their stones down, and um, the young one says to his older friend um, that, see, this is a lot like Mina, and that's a reference to the, the pillars of Mina in the Islamic tradition, mm. in which um, Muslim pilgrims figuratively stone the devil. They're literally throwing rocks at pillars, but it's the um, devil that tempted uh, Abraham to not sacrifice his son. Uh, Isaac in the Christian tradition, Ishmael in the Islamic tradition. Mm. And we can understand that from the perspective of the Iron Cross, because what is that but laying down um, our burdens, our concerns at the foot of that cross when we get to the top of the mountain? And for some, that's sin. And in the Islamic tradition, they're stoning the devil. And what is the devil but the embodiment of sin? Mm. So I think that's what um, young Saeed meant by that. Mm. But even that side itself, Mm -hmm. Dave, is syncretic because it was a pagan monument to Mercury. Mm-hmm. It was uh, where the Romans laid their stones to, to Mercury, the god of travel. And it was uh, Christianized in the 15th century by the hermit Galselmo, who essentially just laid a cross at the top <laughs> of it. And, a Christian, a Christ, and, and then Mina itself in the Islamic tradition is syncretic within mm-hmm. that tradition, uh, because it was previously a, a fertility site associated with thunder gods prior to Islam, mm-hmm. where Mina is today. And so both sites, the Iron Cross and Mina, are syncretic within themselves, and then they are syncretic across the religious traditions. And so I think the film shows those facets briefly, mm-hmm. but they're, they're ripe for exploration mm. of these um, deeper topics that I, I try to um, connect to with my readers and my students. That's great. Thank you for that. You've already alluded to one of the major things that I was hoping to speak with you about, which is um, the two major epic poems that are really set, at least in part, along the Camino, the Song of Roland and the Poem of El Cid. So um, let's take these one at a time, because I think they're both really significant to the Camino Francais in particular. Um, Let's start with the Song of Roland. For those unfamiliar with the Song of Roland, could you outline the general plot? Sure. So the um, Emperor Charlemagne is uh, encroaching on the Spanish march, Mm -hmm. which is the frontier territory for the Frankish kingdom, and um, uh, trying to expand. And then after Saragossa, um, which is in Spain today, Mm -hmm. after that battle, um, the army uh, under Charlemagne retreats into back into France across the Pyrenees and um, they're Ganelon, uh, one of the one of the retinue, one of the paladins of, of Charlemagne, one of 
Darkest Night betrays their um, whereabouts to um, the enemy. And so there's a, a battle with Marseille. There's an attack on the rear guard. So not the vanguard has already gone into the Frankish kingdom back into what today is France. Mm-hmm. And and then the rear guard who is um, protecting the, the tail end of the army, army and that is um, led by Roland, that is attacked. Mm-hmm. Um, Roland is killed. Um, many of, there are some epic scenes in which um, he, I think it's literally epic since it's an epic poem, <laughs> he, he sounds his, his oliphant um, he smashes and, and it's too late, right? The, um, the rear guard's been attacked. The, the, so many have been slain in the, in the French, among the French troops. And, um, he smashes his sword, Durandal, um, you know, which has the, um, power of the swords in the seared as well, uh, so that nobody else can have it. Um, and, and splits the rock um, before passing away, uh, being killed, and and this story has become part of the mythos of the Camino, mm-hmm. and has become associated with sites along the Camino, and is connected to other legends with the same characters, right? Um, outside the Song of Roland. Uh, he, in another tradition, he battles the giant uh, Ferragut, and um, I believe that's part of the Spanish tradition, the Cantar de Roldan. And then um, in the um, Codex Calixtinus, the Book of St. James, um, Charlemagne has a dream in which James summons him to Santiago to protect, protect the Christian lands from the Muslim infidel mm-hmm. and um, Charlemagne follows the way of the stars <laughs> to <laughs> Santiago and and becomes the archetypal pilgrim to St. James and so this story in the Song of Roland is, is part of a cycle mm-hmm. of legends around these his, essentially historical characters is there any, is there anything in the historic record to back up any of these notions that Charlemagne marched to Santiago or or even the, the central events in the Song of Roland? Um, the dream to uh, the dream of Santiago, I think, is uh, fairly mythological, but yeah. there are historical elements. Uh, there is historical information. Charlemagne had a historian. Einhard, who wrote some 50 or 60 years later mm-hmm. about the um, battle that took place um, with uh, Marcille, the leader of the Muslims, against Marcille, rather, and the, and the Muslim troops. So it's not that there wasn't any um, Muslim-Christian uh, conflict, and, mm-hmm. and some of there is some historical, a grain of uh, historical truth to the events in Song of Roland, but mm-hmm. being an epic poem, of course, that the um, circumstances are adapted for artistic pur- purposes.
and there and there are some key differences about about the rear guard being ambushed. So by Einhard's account, mm-hmm. it was the the Basques that ambushed the rear guard mm-hmm. and the um, toward the end of the eighth century. So I guess that would be a key difference. Mm-hmm. And that comes up in the film The Way and in some other places where we see the Basque critique of the Song of Roland, suggesting that you know the history has been has been whitewashed and that the Basques have been have been stripped from it. So it, it it seems like the Song of Roland, you know, Einhard wrote about 50 years after traveling with Charlemagne, but Song of Roland seems to have appeared about three centuries later. So are there any right. other are there any other ways that we can see the the era in which it was produced, the 11th century, shaping the epic narrative? Well, I think if you look at Charlemagne's dream, then you have the answer to your question because it's from about the same time, right? It's from the 12th century, the um, pseudo-Turpin book four of of the book of St. James. And what is St. James inviting Charlemagne to do? It's to protect his lands from the Muslim infidel, right? Mm -hmm. And so this conflict um, with Islam was the issue of the day, much more so than any conflict with the Basques. It was also on a much grander scale. And so I don't know if the ambush, a small-scale ambush by um, the Basques would have been useful as propaganda for Mm -hmm. the cause of waging war against a common enemy. Um, as as much as an uh, epic scale battle with um, in a class of civilizations, if you will, and so the the reconquest um, or the conquest by the Christians um, was well underway by the time that the uh, epic poem, the Song of Roland, came out, mm. and that was part of securing the pilgrimage route and, and provided also an avenue for the influx of settlers, many of them from France who settled in places like Pamplona where there are French, um, historically French neighborhoods and were Mm -hmm. French speaking, um, until, you know, fairly recently, historically, Mm um, 17th century. And so, um, I think it's part of the crusading mentality, mm-hmm. and you can really see the crusading aspect in the in the Song of Roland. Mm. Where else can we see the tr- see traces of the Song of Roland on the Camino? Where where can we see the that legacy um, laid bare for for pilgrims today? Most clearly in Bronces Valles, mm-hmm. but also in Estella, mm-hmm. there is a um, nice um, monument to um, Roland battling the giant Ferragut. Mm. But in, I think, um, Roncesvalles or Roncesvalles in the French, or Riaga to the Basques, that's a crucial locale uh, along the Camino because that is where the um, French and Carolingian interests, that is, interests pertaining to Charlemagne, intersect with the Jacobian ones, so those pertaining to Jacobus or St. James. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the two key locales. 
and you can even see the the remains of human bodies in a sort of common grave. Have you seen that? No, where is that? In in Bronces in Bronces Valles, it's by the chapel. Mm. There, there are all of these um, skeletons, and they're you know purported to be the knights of Charlemagne mm. who who were slain in the remains. Um, there have been DNA samples collected, and they they tend to be from uh, farther away than than um, France, hmm. um, and so they could be the remains of pilgrims. That's what uh, some have theorized based on the um, diverse uh, diversity among the DNA samples, which would seem to indicate a population hailing from uh, broad broader distances than just mm-hmm. coming from France. Um, so that's certainly a site. Mm. And then um, you have different monuments, and it's it's there that the the battle took place, mm-hmm. right? Um, so that's that's the significance. It's not that he's a saint, Roland, mm-hmm. although he is sort of a secular saint. Um, he, along with the Cid, represents to a greater or lesser degree the struggle against um, Islam, mm-hmm. and so that. The significance of Roncesvalles is that where it, it, it's purported to be the or it's the place where this supposedly big battle with King Marcel, um, Roland, Olivier, and forty thousand Christians and Saracen soldiers were were killed. Mm. So it's the battle site. You have um, va- the Valley of uh, Bal Carlos close by. Mm-hmm. Um, and where Charlemagne uh, encamped after his warriors had been slain, and um, and I think that I haven't been this way, but I, um, there are two ways from Saint Jean Pied de Port. Mm-hmm. Have you have you made that trek over yes. the Pyrenees? Yes. Okay, I have not. Aren't there two ways from Saint Jean to Roncesvalles? That's correct. One up over the top, and then one through Val Carlos. Val Carlos. Okay, so that that. It's not just Roncesvalles, but the ones close by. And then there's even, I believe it's in Rocomador uh, in France, or there may be, and there may be other sites that claim to have that, that has a sword in a cliff, right? Yes, yes. That's that's supposedly um, Roland's sword that he, <laughs> you know, yep. after he split the rock, he threw it so nobody else could have it. It wouldn't fall into enemy hands and. And there it sticks on the cliff. So there are a variety of sites. I think uh, Roncesvalles is where it all comes together. Yeah, yeah, I can confirm. I was just in Rocamadour last summer, and that's exactly right. The Roland sword is claimed to be there. This is a good time to transition over to the other epic poem, so the poem of El Cid. So as before, again, could you could you give us a quick plot summary of what happens in this story? Yes, in the poem... Um, the Cid is also betrayed, this time by some advisors to the king who claim that the Cid um, sold sold out the king to um, the enemy. And the king puts the Cid, and it's not true, and, and the king throws the Cid into exile, which is a huge deal, and that's where the poem starts. Right with the tears 
in, in his eyes from this exile because it's so grave. I mean, it's a living death mm-hmm. at the time. More is too loose is the term for exile, and it's next to the, it's right next to the death penalty in the um, legal code of the day. So he's thrown into exile, and he just wants to win. He assembles uh, Mesnada. He assembles some troops to fight with him. No one's allowed to give him lodging. And all he wants to do is um, regain his king's good graces, Alfonso the Sixth. Mm-hmm. And so he wages battle against the enemy, um, Muslims mostly. Mm-hmm. And sends a good chunk of the booty of, from every battle to the king, back to the king, culminating with the uh, taking of Valencia, at which point um, he is able to um, go to court, defend his cause, and his, after his his daughters are um, raped by some um, and and left for dead by um, these noblemen, the Infantes de, de Carrion, who are noble in title but not in character, hmm. um, leave his daughters for dead after they they feel um, embarrassed and ashamed when they are um, cowed by a lion that the Cid is able to calm. Um, just by standing up and, and putting his hand out. And the, the lion, w- which can be interpreted symbolically, um, bows down before the Cid. Mm. And then um, the Cid is able to go defend his cause in the king's court and regains his king's graces. Mm-hmm. So that's the literal story of the uh, poem of the Cid, but it can be interpreted symbolically. It can be interpreted as a symbolic pilgrimage if we interpret pilgrimage as exile, right? Um, Like Adam is described as the first pilgrim. Adam in the Bible is described as the first pilgrim in the Benedandadia's sermon because he's thrown into exile from paradise. Um because he eats of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Mm-hmm. And the fall is what puts him, the fall from grace is what puts him into exile. And then he becomes separated from God the Father. And so that is analogous to, if, if we understand the king to be uh, God's representative on earth, which is how um, the kings were understood or un- understood themselves to be at the time. Uh, and we compare the Cid to Adam, we compare um, the exile to the fall, then the Cid's um, return to the kingdom and the king's good graces would be equivalent to salvation or paradise. And we can look at this in, in terms of the circular journey that pilgrimage um, is still, even though it's commonly seen as a a linear phenomenon going from Rocamador or Roncesvalles or wherever it is to to Santiago, and then it's over. Mm -hmm. 
historically that wasn't the case, right? When the Camino started, people started from their front doors and went to Santiago and came back. And they might have gone one way and come back another way mm-hmm. if they made it back. Yeah. And that's still the case today. I've walked with a pilgrim from Arles who left from his front door. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was making that circular journey. He was not going to be catching a, a train or a plane or any sort of transportation back. But, and you do encounter those pilgrims walking the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. Um, at least I have. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Have you seen those? Yeah, you... absolutely. Yeah, so uh, many of them are walking back home mm-hmm. um, from from what I've gathered in my conversations with them. And so I think that circular aspect of the Sid's journey is reflective of pilgrimage as well. Mm-hmm. Like the Song of Roland, this is also set during the Reconquista, the epic poem mm-hmm. develops during that time. So how, right. does, how does it also reflect that particular era? Well, the Cid, the presentation in the poem of the Cid is not as black and white <laughs> as it is in Roland. In Roland, um, it's literally black and white. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are there are lines as obvious as the pagans are wrong, the Christians are right, mm-hmm. and the enemy's skin was black as molten pitch. And so you get into all of these issues of race in the Song of Roland. In in the Cid, you have some of those scenes. I mean, he splits Yusuf um, down the middle with his sword. It's pretty graphic mm-hmm. and pretty clear that Yusuf is his enemy. However, there are Muslims who are his friend. Mm. such as a Bengal boy, uh, whom he embraces and kisses on the shoulder in Moorish fashion. Mm. And so that is reflective, much more reflective of the reality of the reconquest, uh, or what we understand today to be the reconquest, because the reality was there were Christians battling against Muslims, to be sure. But there also were Christian kings battling against other Christian kings for territory to expand their kingdom and Muslims battling against other Muslims. So it's the reconquest is not just um, as as stark a contrast as as we're often um, led to believe. Mm-hmm. And I think the what the Cid uh, the Cid the poem of the Cid reflects that reality. Mm. And whereas the Roland related imagery predominates in the Navarra region, we see a lot of El Cid on the Camino in Castilla. So where, what are some of the mm-hmm. sites that stand out to you along this part of the Camino? I suppose the city of Burgos, whereas Bronces Valle yeah. is, the, is the epicenter of the, the Roland's iconography. Burgos would be the epicenter. Um, his home, his solar was, was outside, just to the north in, in Cardenia. But his remains are not there. His remains, of course, were um, moved to the uh, Cathedral of Santa Maria. Mm-hmm. Um, I bet you've seen them there. Mm-hmm. And um, so that there are also statues in the town of um, various figures associated with the story, even Doña Jimena, mm-hmm. um, his wife, and um, a very imposing statue of the Cid himself. 
mean, he is the total ubermensch in that <laughs> in that statue. And but there are some sites there, and I really enjoy Burgos mm. as as a town. You, you sites associated with his exile, for example, the River Arlanza comes through town. That's one of the really lovely parts of of the city to have that river uh, flowing through the town. But that is where, you know, the rocky shoals of that river, that's where the Cid and his men had to sleep mm-hmm. in the poem because no one could take them in or without suffering a severe penalty. Um, so much like there are the, the lands in and around Burgos are associated with events from the poem, just as the, is the case with the Song of Roland and Roncesvalles. But then, in keeping with what we were talking about earlier, with the Cid having a close friend, a Bengalbon, who was a Muslim, and greeting him in, in Muslim fashion, this cultural hybridity we can see in Burgos. Uh, for example, in the Convento de las Huelgas, the, the monastery there mm-hmm. of Las Huelgas. If you have not been, if your listeners have not been, I, I strongly encourage them to go because you see this blending of Islamic and Christian architectural styles, um, really nice um, woodwork and plaster work that's has the geometric interlaced patterns so typical of Islamic architecture, um, fantastic brickwork of the same variety. Um, there's a, a museum with um, pillows that were burial pillows that were woven um, for kings and queens. And for one um, Christian monarch, her pillow says uh, in Arabic, there is one God and he is Allah, mm. which may seem out of keeping for a Christian monarch, but all Allah means is God. And so that is just saying there's no God but God, Mm -hmm. which would be perfectly in keeping for a Christian monarch to have as her burial pillow. But the Moorish fashions um, are evident in this this structure. And so um, this term, and I learned this from Tom Spaccarelli, in fact, Mudejarismo, the Mudejar style architecture. The Mudejars were the um, Muslims living in Christian lands, and their influence um, is evident. And so that's cultural hybridity, this blending, can be called uh, Mudejarismo. And it's it's seen in the architecture and the textiles, and also in the culture, which is reflected in the poem. And so that is not directly associated with the Cid, mm-hmm. but to me it represents that spirit of cultural hybridity, which can be seen mm-hmm. in the poem of the Cid. So we've talked a lot about how the Reconquista appears in, in the Song of Roland, in the poem of El Cid, in the um, in the the cultural hybridity, which you've been talking about, and some of the the sites along the way. I wonder if we could zoom out and could you talk a little bit more about exactly how or the role that the Reconquista played or that era played in the creation and development of the pilgrimage to Santiago itself? In what ways uh, are those two um, interwoven? 
they are interwoven because in medieval minds, the pilgrimage and the crusade were two sides of the same coin. Mm. Um, European Christian knights were encouraged to engage in pilgrimage, and for example, people who participated in Urban II's first crusade to Jerusalem thought of themselves as pilgrims mm. rather than crusaders. So um, many times warriors after winning a battle would go on pilgrimage, um, or many times pilgrims who would complete the journey would um, make a vow to to engage in battle. And so there are many settlements, um, such as Via Franca del Bierzo, uh, which owe their existence to the Reconquest. They, uh, it's the battles of the Reconquest, which was viewed as a crusade um, in the eyes of the uh, Fourth Lateran Council, because the, um, the soldiers were given um, remission we're given a plenary indulgence for engaging in battle, which is the same um, reward given for those knights um, waging the crusade further east. Those places over there, so that advanced south helped establish these settlements. Haka um, is one of those, and, and there's the whole axis. Um, So there were um, bishops such as Diego de Hermides and Pedro Suarez who had a hand in the crusades and these are bishops in Compostela and and then, as I said, many pilgrims to Compostela wound up as crusaders against the Muslims. George Zarnecki um, wrote, quote, it is not a coincidence that the reconquest of Spain was contemporary with the greatest popularity of Santiago. Pilgrimage and the Holy War became in many minds the same thing. End mm. quote. So, if you look at um, Joseph O'Callaghan's description of of conquest in Spain, reconquest Spain, I think we can see in in the poem of the Cid and elsewhere the the aspects, the, these different facets of reconquest Spain, um, the blending of the sacred and the secular interests, right? It's not just a religious war, but also a war of uh, territorial expansion, right? Or there's even an association with the expansion of the king's house and the expansion of Christendom. Mm -hmm. um, and there are certainly crusading elements um, in the Cid in which his military campaign can be viewed as a crusade. And all you have to do is look at the um, the behavior of the bishop. The, it's the bishop that leads him into battle mm -hmm. um, on one occasion. And so we see that overlap between the, the religious war. Uh, it's not it's not a holy war. Right? It's not jihad. Mm -hmm. But it's um it's a religious war in some sense. And it's coupled with uh, the ter territorial ambitions. One of the clearest places we can see that that duality or that split is in the two Santiago's that we have Santiago Peregrino and we have Santiago Matamoros. And 
I recall shortly after 9-11, there was a big debate in the cathedral in Santiago over what to do with the statue, the statue of Santiago Matamoros that's in the transept of the cathedral. So, and that's, you know, a right. clear legacy of, of that era in which the pilgrimage came about. So maybe to, to wrap up, I'm curious about your thoughts as you know, what should we do with, uh, with that image of Santiago Matamoros? How should the pilgrimage of the present deal with this tradition that speaks to a very different era? short answer is honestly and openly mm-hmm. and to do so in relation to Islam, particularly on the Iberian Peninsula within Spain. I don't know if you recall how that, <laughs> what the compromise was with that particular statue of Santiago, who is on horseback, blazing his sword uh, against Turks. They appear to be Ottoman Turks. Um, some decapitated, mm-hmm. right at the foot of his white steed. Um, that is a statue that traditionally has been paraded through uh, Santiago on Saint James Day, mm-hmm. on July 25th. It was initially proposed for that statue to be removed, but there was a public outcry. And mm-hmm. so the compromise, and if you've seen the statue recently, I believe the last time I saw the statue, it was still the case. Mm-hmm. The, the statue is still there in the South Transept. But did you notice what a difference? Not the last time I was there. What What's what's supposed to be the, the heads of the Muslims are covered in, in fronds and leaves of plants. I don't think and I noticed so that. A, I wonder if that's still the case. There's a masking um, since, since that happened. Hmm. That, that has been the um, compromise, if you will. And it's a, an attempt to shroud, I suppose, the goriness of the image. Hmm. Right? And that's, that's an image that, returning to our uh, initial conversation about Saint-Jacques-Lamette, once Saeed, the um, illiterate, or the, the boy who learns to read Islamic youth, learns that they're going to the shrine of St. James, he says, and he slayed loads of Arabs like us in an image from the Burgos Cathedral of Santiago on horseback flashes across the screen with a, um, a Muslim person uh, cowering in fear underneath, underneath his sword. And so I think we have to confront these images honestly. What um, what has tended to happen is that these um, the palm leaves masks that mask the heads of victims. Or I remember being in Cadiz in southern Spain, not on the Camino at all, but in the center of um, the tablo is an image of Santiago Matamoros. Mm-hmm. And the school children who were visiting wanted to know all about it. <laughs> and the priest, the Jesuit priest giving the tour, wanted to talk about everything but that <laughs> statue. And so there's a tendency to to try and paper over it. Um, I think contemporary pilgrims, from what I've seen in the vast majority, want nothing, want, don't want to be associated with that image at all. They want to, of the saint, they want to be associated with the image of um, what they perceive to be 
a peaceful pilgrim. But what is missing, I think, is an understanding of the relationship between the reconquest or the pilgrimage and the crusade, that they are they can still be perceived as two sides of the same coin. And the manifestation of Santiago as Matamoros has to be seen in connection to his manifestation as a pilgrim. And in fact, the staff of the pilgrim can be seen as a recessive sword. And if you look at many of the statues of Matamoros, there's still uh, elements of the shell. And they're not just, uh, it's not just one or the other, but those images exist on a spectrum. Mm. And there is even a statue in Mirar of a Santiago Peregrino, St. James is a pilgrim, Matamoros, with the head of a Muslim at his feet. Wow. And, right. And so it is, I think we are creating, um, there is a false dichotomy that's present in many, many people's minds. But how should we confront it? With an understanding that the image of Matamoros is a post hoc representation. In other words, after, there are not really any images like this that come, that date from the Reconquest. I mean, they really started in the 15th century. Hmm after the reconquest is, is basically complete. And so it's a triumphalist announcement of the battles that have been won. And so some say that the discovery of St. James's remains were made, were a direct response to um, a relic of Muhammad in Cordoba, Mm-hmm. to the south, the center of uh, the caliphate, right, in, on the Iberian Peninsula. And it exists in dialogue with the Islamic tradition in Spain, this image of Santiago Matamoros. In fact, if you go to the mosque of Cordoba today, which has a cathedral, was preserved by Fernando de Santo, who, who conquered the city in 1236. Mm-hmm. But he insisted it was so beautiful, this mosque, that it be preserved. And he put a cathedral in the center, surrounded by a mosque. Mm-hmm. And in that cathedral is an image of Santiago Matamoros. Mm-hmm. And so that is... Um, the height of irony. But I think it's a false... Talk about whitewashing history, the history uh, of this reconquest. If we were to try to dictate the what images are displayed and which ones aren't, that has happened. We don't have to theorize. That has happened. And for whatever reason, people are attracted. There is a section of the population that is attracted to this image. Even in Mexico, in places where Santiago Matamoros became Mata Indios, mm-hmm. the um, local populations have shown a 
are greater attraction and um, reverence for the iconography associated with Matamoros or Mata Indios rather than um, the pilgrim iconography. And so I think we should dialogue about these points mm. and not try to cover up um, these representations or pretend that one should exist without the other. The pilgrim iconography should exist without the um, Matamoros iconography. But they can be, I'm not saying they're not offensive. <laughs> <laughs> um, they clearly are in, 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 in both senses, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Militaristic sense, offensive, and offensive in, in other senses. But they also provide a window into um, the mentality of, I suppose, the post-medieval age. Mm. And they certainly are a way of engaging with the pilgrimage tradition in connection to the reconquest. John, this has been fascinating and really informative, um, and I can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk with me about all of it. Thank you very much, Dave. It's been a lot of fun to talk with you. The Song of Roland and the Poem of El Cid are two works that are definitely worth the read. The Camino in these epic poems are in many ways children of a common mother, reflections of the era in which they weren't necessarily born, but certainly took new form, the historic events behind Roland and El Cid and the pilgrimage to Santiago that had come about a few centuries earlier, but really took its permanent place in the spotlight when we moved into the 11th century. Your experiences in Roncevalle and in Burgos and all through the first half of the Camino Frances will be deeply enhanced, I think, by having this context. Certainly, Roncevalle feels a little bit more magical with this legendary context in mind. And best of all, they're epic poems, so they're relatively quick reads. Easy to have with you on the plane, on your first few days, on the walk to add some nice background to the experience. That's going to do it for episode 13, the first one back from a couple months away. Thanks to John Moore for being with me for this first episode back, and thanks to all of you for finding your way back to the podcast. I will have, as I said at the beginning, much more regular content for you over the course of the next month and a half. As always, you can find us in a lot of different places, on SoundCloud, on iTunes, on northerncaminos.com. We also have a Facebook page now. Um, just look for Camino Podcast on Facebook, and you can find all the episodes posted there, along with any other information along the way, and you can easily post comments there. You can also get in touch with us at CaminoPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again, and have a good day.